Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's conversation, we'll discuss a recent announcement by Concordia University in Montreal that it intends to decolonize its curriculum, pedagogy, and overall institutional culture, and what this announcement tells us about broader trends in North American universities, the culture, and our understanding of history. David, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. Concordia's decolonization plans are set out in a multi-year strategy for the university. It defines decolonization as, quote, a necessary and ongoing process of unlearning, uncovering, and transforming legacies of colonialism, as well as utilizing the educational and knowledge systems available to relearn and rebuild the social, cultural, and linguistic foundations that were lost or eroded through colonialism, unquote, and commits to, quote, critically evaluating and decentering Eurocentric knowledge systems and reconceptualizing curriculum in ways that center, weave, and privilege indigenous ways of knowing, lived experiences, histories, and perspectives, unquote. David, I won't ask you to decipher all of that. Instead, yeah. let's just start with your big picture reaction. Why do you think this type of announcement is significant? What does it tell us about universities and the broader culture? If this announcement meant that Concordia University was going to invest more effort in teaching non-Western languages, in studying more closely Latin American history and uh, the history of other societies, you know, do, doing more work on geography in Africa. If, if what they were talking about was additive to human knowledge, then yeah, more, more knowledge is good. The rest of the world is growing faster than Europe and North America. And obviously these, uh, these parts of the world need to be integrated into knowledge. But that's not what they want to do. They don't want to, what they are talking about is actually not adding to knowledge, but anti-knowledge. And the, the, the stinger in the tail is when they talk about elevating indigenous ways of knowledge. And the reason this is uh, such a stinger, supposing Concordia announced that, that what they were going to do was convert their curriculum to upholding the truth and beauty of the Roman Catholic religion, um, that every attendee at Concordia would be instructed in the Roman Catholic religion and they would be graded on their commitment to its doctrines. People say, are you crazy? You, you can't teach religion at a Canadian institution like a, from inside. Like that's well, the central fact about indigenous ways of knowledge, the central fact about all non-Western ways of knowledge is they're religious. That's that is, and if you don't know that about them, you don't know anything about them. The whole idea that knowledge can be separated from faith is itself the first and most important contribution to Western civilization. If you're going to reject Western ways of knowing, you, what you really have to do, if you're going to be serious about it, is reject the concept of secularity. Because many of these systems have, they, they have things that they claim to know that obviously are not true. 
you know, traditional Indian medicine with its system of teaching about the systems of the body and the different food groups. It's not true. You know, uh, the myths and legends that the Aboriginal people of North America tell about their origins, they're not true. You go through you go through claim after claim. They're not true. The only way that these claims are defensible is they are religious doctrines. And so we don't tend to challenge them in a Western society because because we have this rule. Well, we don't. It's it's bad form. I mean, it would be very bad form, even if you're not a Catholic, to say, I don't, you know, I'm not a Catholic. I happen not to agree with it. But you don't offensively say that the claims are not true because the the proponents don't claim that these are universally true. That's the price of living in a uh, yes. secular, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith society. But if Concordia is serious about doing anything other than look, just hiring some decorative people to fill out a quota. If they're serious about this project, what they're doing is talking about making their institution a religious institution that is going to teach things that are not true as true in order to and defend the non-true claims by saying, well, th this is our religious faith here at Concordia. Yeah, well said. I, I would just say in parentheses, your observation about it being uh, subtracting rather than adding to human knowledge is, is reflected in the first word of the, of the document I, I, I cited at the beginning, which is unlearn that notion of unlearning runs through a lot of uh, these ideas that increasingly are finding resonance and salience on, on different university campuses across North America, which leads me, David, to my, my second question, um, because it must be said that Concordia in its defense is, uh, is hardly an outlier on some of these issues, which begs the, the bigger question, what is going on on university campuses these days, David? How have these fringe ideas come to loom so large? I think a cynical thing that is going on in university campuses is universities have said, look, our, our core mission is science and technology. That's where our social prestige comes from. Uh, that's where the money comes from. That's what most people want to study. So, what, But we also recognize that there are these destructive elements on university campuses. So, so what we're essentially going to do is make a deal with them. We will surrender the humanities departments, which are withering anyway, and, and let them run, do, do with them what they will. And there may be some infiltration to some of the social sciences. We'll concede sociology and not economics. That's important. But we, but we will. It's a partition deal. They're offering is we we take science, we take STEM plus economics. You get the rest. You leave us in peace. We'll leave you in peace. That I think is basically what is going on. Problem is, as with all systems of appeasement, it doesn't work because implicit in the concession is it's actually kind of insulting, which is you can destroy the history department or the English department, because in the end, we, the, you know, the president of the university doesn't think they're very important. Just stay away from chemistry, economics, and medicine. Now, the people to whom you make that proposition say, well, we, we, you know, they are zealots. They believe in what they're doing. They are not going to let you keep economics and engineering and medicine un uncontaminated. They, they're going to want, the, they want the whole thing because implicit in the, in the partition is a criticism. And that, that is what, that is what, so there's going to be a, a struggle. And I think the university ends up being, you know, either rediscovering its commitment to truth, it rediscovering its commitment to the separation of faith from knowledge, rediscovering its commitment to secularism and non-sectarianism, or it's going to end up surrendering and surrendering more and more and more of the ground. For a long time, I thought these ideas were counterproductive and dumb, but ultimately harmless. I've started to doubt that assumption in recent months. The demonstration and protests that we've seen on campuses and in Canada's major cities, effectively in support of Hamas, are a sign that the ideology of decolonization and oppressed versus oppressor are having real world consequences. Talk about that for a minute. 
Well, it, it is it is dumb because it destroys the knowledge of the very thing it claims to promote. Who is, if you're studying um, the history of India, who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed? Well, the answer is that, you know, look, emperor, emperor, empires come, empires go, there are Muslim invasions at various times, there are Turkish invasions, there are Afghan invasions, um, then there are, counter, there are counter moves by different, by more indigenous faith traditions. But we're not going to be able to get very far in any real way of studying India if we insist on saying either the Muslims are invaders and colonizers and the Hindus are oppressed, or conversely, that in modern India, it just doesn't work. You don't know, end up, you end up not knowing very much about India, just the ideology, you end up taking an ideological system and applying it. In the same way, if you're going to study the history of the Middle East, the Ottoman world, who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed, how do you think, the? it doesn't, it's a system that is designed to apply only to one case in human history. And since it only applies to that one case, everyone ends up studying that single case. And all kinds of things that are important to know end up not being studied because you can't cram them into the into mm. the ideology. And so history is the domain where I know best, but it also ends up affecting everything else. And like, if you're going to teach literature or art, there's an infinite number of works of art. There's an infinite number of, of texts to study. Universities used to be confident that they could tell you these are the ones that are important to study, and these are the ones that you can read on your own or that are you know best left to the dust of of oblivion. If they lose that faith, what's the point of them? If, if everything is a text and any way of reading a text is as good as any other one, well, then why do we have literature departments at all? Why do we have people employed to teach literature? You know, what are you doing here that's so that's useful? So it, it self cannibalizes. It, it it both forces knowledge out of the picture. And as I said, I think a lot of this just begins, which is, I think very much at Concordia, you have a bunch of people who would like to teach who would, by normal standards of qualification, not be hired to teach. And so you have to invent a rationalization for giving them the teaching jobs um, that they otherwise wouldn't qualify. But you, as I said, with the other conceptions, you cannot, you find you cannot, the, the days in which that could be confined or hemmed in, well, we have, you know, these one or two jobs that we fill as best we can for reasons that are political, uh, but most of the university escapes. Obviously, that's not true anymore. The rest of the university does not escape. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry we've got it all the thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca while you're there sign up for our complimentary hub membership you'll get delivered to your inbox each and every saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca in the U.S., where you are, David, a lot of universities rely on private funding. In Canada, virtually all universities are still largely dependent on public funding. How should Canadian governments respond to these intellectual trends? Should they use their financial levers to intervene? And if so, how do you avoid a scenario where politicians are effectively deciding what should be researched and taught on university campuses? This is there's an interesting theoretical argument here, but as a practical argument, as we've discussed before, politicians won't do it. They can't. They don't know enough. They don't care enough. They're not present enough. And you get situations like the one that, that Governor DeSantis bumped into in Florida, where you, in, in attempting to minutely govern what is ungovernable, you write rules of increasing specificity. 
that end, end up leading to absurd results and are intent. Like you, so you write something, you write a rule, and the, the, the people who don't like the rule say, right, okay, the first book under the band under this rule is the diary of Anne Frank. And the second book banned under the rule is the dictionary, because we can do that. The rule is, and then you said, well, let's rewrite the rule so it doesn't, and then and then something else, because in the end, comply, you cannot make a university comply, and you shouldn't try to. I mean, people either believe in truth, they either believe in secular knowledge, they either believe that religion should be separated from science, or they don't. And if, if they don't, if if What's just going to end up happening is actually intellectual life is going to migrate away from universities, which is something that, ha I mean, look, in, if we were in North America in 1920, and we wanted to know where were the interesting people, the best scholars, you wouldn't look for them at a university. You know, that that's just not where the universities didn't hire people like that. That's not what universities were for. They would be somewhere else. Hmm. And I think that that is happening. I One last story. I... I a little while ago, I met a very distinguished former scientist who had had an academic background and then had worked for these para-government, these government-based research institutions in an area of science. And it was he was now working in, in a for-profit environment. And he had hired, he told me, over the past couple of years, 400 scientists to work in a particular field. And all of them had left universities. And so I said, did you offer them stock? Did you double their salaries? How did you get them away? So no, he said, I offered them no paperwork. I don't pay them a dime more than they're making at the university, but I do it in an environment where it's fun to be. And, you know, and what that's what's going to happen is that there are going to be people who are in universities and they will say, okay, this is miserable, but I don't have options, so I stick it out. But the people who have options will say, I'll go somewhere else that isn't miserable. Hmm. And I'll go, and people, everyone in a university is making a kind of economic sacrifice to do something, well, not everyone, but the people who should be there are making an economic sacrifice to do something I think is important. Well, if they can't do it, why will they make that economic sacrifice? And the universities will then fill up. I, I just I just did this this exercise the other day where we we're thinking about I was thinking about a particular I won't use names, but a particular American university that had been in the news. And I went, so as you see, I, I own, as you do, a lot of books, thousands of them. And probably two-thirds of them in the, in the domain of history, and, and and probably the majority of the two-thirds published by living authors. So I went to the and I and, and I went to the faculty page was, do I own any books by any of the people in this large faculty? And so, you know, I get up to K and I find one and then I skip ahead to N and I find another. But I, I realized that they've got like four dozen academics who are supposedly at the top of their field. And, you know, and I and and, and I think, am I making a mistake? And I look through the public. No, no, not missing anything, not missing anything. So, you know, it catches up with you. People notice that you're not doing a good job. And Canadian universities are insulated because again they are not they're not in that kind of marketplace and they're much bigger and they're they're much more geographically based. Students choose them on the basis of where they're located, not because of the particularities of the university. But Concordia, if it takes this project seriously, is going to end up doing a lot of damage to its reputation for whatever that what they may not care about that. And maybe there are people who benefit from the university being less distinguished, but the university overall, the, the graduates suffer. David, I know a lot of university professors and administrators, in, including some presidents, regularly listen to the Hub's podcasts. It feels like we're facing something of a moment of reckoning in the aftermath of Claudine Gay's testimony and subsequent resignation. What should they be doing to protect themselves, their institutions, and ultimately their social license to continue to receive funding and 
and operate in Canadian society. I was very struck reading the Claudine Gay story that one of the people she plagiarized was her own dissertation advisor. Now, that leads to, a, to me a couple of conclusions. There are a couple of possible explanations. One is he didn't read her dissertation before he graded it, which is one set of alarming. The second is he didn't read his own work, that graduate students wrote it for him and he didn't know what was in it, which is another kind of alarming. Mm -hmm. the, the third possibility is that he read the dissertation, noticed the plagiarism and decided not to react because a lot of people at many steps along the way had had incentives to overlook what was clearly someone who shouldn't be in academic life. Her dissertation is available online. That's why I checked. She, she started her career when she won a prize at Stanford for the best undergraduate paper in political science that year. It's private property because undergraduate theses are properly not published. But I venture, if one looked at it, it would be full of plagiarism too. And I would venture that the person who graded it probably had a pretty good idea that that was true. Yes. So when you say, when people say, what do we do about this problem we have? We say, well, you, you know, you're not looking for me to rescue you from a proper a problem, not of your own making. You don't need my advice. You have consciously chosen this path. So I don't, don't ask me what you should do about it. Ask yourself, why am I doing it? And, if, and as I arrive at a destination where my institution is increasingly discredited, where my whole project is increasingly discredited, I need to ask myself some hard questions about why did we do this to ourselves? What, how have we lost our faith in the mission that there is truth, there is dogma, there is fact, there is untruth, there is religion, there is science, these are different, and we are in the truth business. And in the realm of the humanities, that there is things that are more important to know, things that are less important to know, works of art that are greater, works of art that are lesser. If we don't believe those things, just close the place and turn it into you know, a very fancy hotel or something. At the same time, David, it seems to me wrong for conservatives to abandon universities. They remain major culture-shaping institutions, and they're still, by and large, responsible for cultivating our social elites. How should conservatives, therefore, respond to some of these trends? Is there a way to actually seize on the moment to carry out sensible reform and renewal? Well, there's a classic work of political science that says that every institution offers unhappy participants two remedies. One is voice and the other is exit. And I would agree with you that conservatives shouldn't give up on the project of having voice, but the, their voice is only going to be credible to the extent that there's exit. And what exit is going to mean is that the STEM project that the universities care about needs to begin to migrate away from them, as, as is happening. Um, that's the thing that is really going to panic universities. If, if big science ceases to be, with all of its money, ceases to be a project that is university-based. And I think building other kinds of institutions, I mean, conservatives have a problem with this because conservatives these days seem to value dogma of their own rather than real teaching. Not every critique of everything that was thought in 1970 is wrong. And if you can't take those critiques on board in an intellectually rigorous way, then, you, you know, how are you better than the people you're mad at? But the, the possibility of, of exit is what is going to sharpen the edge of, of voice. I, I was recently in a situation where I, I got a kind of tentative invitation to take part in a dialogue about how to reform a particular place. And I decided I, I didn't want to do it because I realized we're still at the stage where the Soviet authorities are inviting the economist Novi Sibiris to try to say, is there a way to incorporate uh, some price signals within central planning? 
You know what? This isn't going to work. We need we need to begin by saying, you know, we need you to agree the central planning system has failed, and then we'll talk about how do we move to a price system. But we we need the universities to begin by saying, you know what? Uh, there are things worth reading that are more worth reading, things that are less. There's the professors know more than the students. The Western idea that faith and faith is to be separated from knowledge is that's at the core. If we center indigenous ways of knowing, we destroy the profoundly non-indigenous institution that is the Western university. And, you know, we're just going to face that. We're going to face, we've got a Western cultural heritage that now can embrace the whole world. And we now want to teach in the way that we've inherited from the past, other kinds of subjects and discover other kinds of writers and discover other kinds of histories and, and other kinds of geographies and integrate that. But, you know, using our way of knowing, because we believe in it. On the subject of controversial topics, you have a major new long-form essay out uh, defending former U.S. President Woodrow Wilson from cancel culture. I won't ask you to lay out all of your arguments here. Listeners and viewers should go read the essay. Uh, but what did you learn in researching and writing it that applies to our conversation today? So it is, it is about to come out in the Atlantic probably a day or two after you and I speak. It is, I must caution people, quite long. Um, and I spent a lot of time on it. There are a lot of individual stories about Wilson that are are false, and one one or two of them I de I debunk. But look, the main thing I would want people to know is it's not good enough to say, well, people in the past were different. You have to understand how things in the past were arranged differently. So I'm especially I'm especially concerned about the attacks on Woodrow Wilson, not from the left, but from which are the usual thing, but from the right, because. Wilson inaugurated a project of state building in the United States, of making the federal government more effective, making the, uh, the United States more active in the world. He also had some bigoted ideas. Um, and he also was, by the way, and I agree with this, generally an unpleasant person. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not an admirer of him as a human being. And so I think there are people on the right who have said, aha, if we can, we can use these points where he deviates from modern ideas about what is fair and right, uh, as weapons to destroy the project of having a central bank, uh, relying on the income tax rather than um, on tariffs, uh, having America be active in the world, that have, believing in alliances. Um, the, these legacies of Woodrow Wilson, we, we, we will use objections that people who defend these projects can't they can't, you know, they, these are the, these are, we've leveled the biggest, we've pound the most, the heaviest boulders to drop on his head. They can't defend him against these boulders. And then we can take, and there's a very dramatic example of this. In, there's an opinion by Justice Neil Gorsuch um, that came out a year or two ago that is very devastating to the EPA's attempt to regulate greenhouse gases. And in the middle of this, and beneath this opinion is a footnote in which there's a lengthy personal attack on Woodrow Wilson. You're like, well, what's this doing here? And and by the way, it also goes to, go, speaking of Claudine Gay, the, the, the footnote is totally slapdash. It obviously was many of the, I, I track each quotation that he uses and they're taken out of context. Some of them mean the reverse of what he claimed to mean. Obviously what happened was he sent a law clerk to do this. They trolled the internet, pulled off something that was probably pretty prefab and stuck it into a Supreme Court opinion, which is not quite Claudine Gay level of bad, but bad. But his point was, if I can show you that Woodrow Wilson said things that liberals don't like, therefore, I silence you when I say, therefore, we cannot regulate greenhouse gases as a pollutant. You need to say, you know what, that that's the fact that, that people on the left are defenseless against the move doesn't make it a good move. And they shouldn't be so defenseless. 
But also, it's still a bad move because the federal government needs to regulate greenhouse gases as a pollutant. Well, David, I always enjoy our conversations, but today was particularly insightful. I want to thank you and look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. <laughs>